Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast. In our podcast, we discuss the new view of safety, what works and what doesn't work, to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your organization. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Pam, and we appreciate you listening. Please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast. You can find us on most podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us. I am grateful to have three of my favorite safety people, I should just say favorite people, back to the podcast to give us an update, second update on the COVID-19 virus pandemic. And you are all doing some really great things to protect our workers. And it's my pleasure to have you back. I'd like to go ahead and do a a quick introduction. Most people probably know you, but um, Hillary, do you wanna start who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, All right, well, I'm Hillary Warren, glad to be with you. Uh, I'm an industrial hygienist with the state of Georgia's on-site safety and health consultation program where I've been for, um, this is my 16th year with with that program. Wow. Um, And I have an undergrad in biology and a um, master's degree in public health. Um, And so this is... This is an interesting topic for me. And back in 2009-2010, our program was the recipient of an OSHA Susan Harwood grant on developing um, business continuity plans for for businesses in the face of, you know, what if we have a pandemic? And uh, that was brought to fruition during that time period. And we went from talking about it in the abstract to talking about it in real time as the swine flu H5N1 um, pandemic occurred during that time period. So developed a lot of training materials around um, management of an infectious disease in the workplace during that time. So you were ready for this? Yeah, we were ready for this. Um, and, and you know, honestly kind of, um, dis- well, dismayed just personally, but certainly was expected to, we have short memories as human beings, I think. And so, you know, um, we went from, oh, well, maybe this'll, maybe this'll happen at some point in time and trying to convince people that they don't want to prepare for it in the middle of it. And then, um, then witnessed people scrambling and, and we worked, you know, nonstop with, with companies during that period of time. Um, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, 10 years. And um, we, I think the thing that's been shocking is just to watch the denial around this in comparison to um, people working hard to do the best that they could during that particular pandemic. Um, yeah. Thank you, Hillary. Uh, Lisa. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Lisa Kapisik. I work with Braswood and Lori. Um, we are a large general contractor based in the Southeast. I 
am part of the uh, group of eighty or so safety professionals that we have, and a lot of my work in the field uh, with project kind of revolves around implementing um, a lot of the best practices, a lot of the, uh, in this particular case, uh, helping our crews and groups understand the importance of uh, kind of an ever-evolving set of guidelines and rules that we practice out in the field, which to Hillary's point, um, you know, makes it difficult because it's, because we're learning new things every day uh, and every week about uh, COVID-19 and how it's transmitted uh, and some of the best practices, it's, it makes it harder for people to really set you know, their sights on one goal. And so the more information changes, the more people have opportunities to uh, maybe doubt its validity and uh, just really kind of figuring out ways to work with the team uh, in the, keep that topic in the forefront and really help uh, our implementation and really resilience out in the field to, to make it through um, the life of this pandemic prior to um, a vaccination being out and about you know, to, to all of us. And so that's, I'm excited to talk about that today uh, with everyone. Learn, I always learn things on these. Uh, podcast. So uh, thank you for having me. Well, now you're going to just skip right over the fact that you're a CSP and you get a what? master's in this and that and all this stuff because you're the, one of the most humble people I know. But uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I actually did start out on the IH side um, and moved over into the safety realm probably about five years in, into my career, but was able to to bring some of that knowledge, specifically working um, in the construction industry and exposures to our employees uh, in everyday tasks. Uh, and then partnered with Hillary and Georgia Tech um, on efforts and you know a few other things. So it's been really it's been really fun and unique angle to be able to come in and provide uh, just some uh, some gap knowledge uh, for tasks that we do every day. I think that oftentimes is maybe um, overcomplicated uh, and seemingly insurmountable in the construction industry. So, um, but yeah, I have probably 32 years now, I think, in, in the industry, and um, and it's been it's been a fun ride for the most part. For the most part, and and that's one of the things that makes this group so interesting because you all have strong uh, industrial hygiene um, health experience married with construction experience. And that's, that's somewhat of a rare thing. And so that, that's why I'm so grateful to have you all on here. And we'll shift over to Nicole, who has a kind of a similar background. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. My name is Nicole Ivers. I'm uh, the corporate HSC director for Bats and Cook Construction here in the Southeast. Um, I've worked uh, here in the US and then also overseas as well on some um, large construction projects. Um, just came back a couple years ago, just in time for this COVID pandemic. 
Um, but like Lisa and Hillary, I'm, I started in uh, industrial hygiene. I have a master's in industrial hygiene and I'm a CIH. And I then later got involved in, in safety and um, became a CSP. Uh, so this is kind of interesting to be able to kind of see my, the first area of my experience and passion around safety, um, which is more of a public health uh, focus to come back and, and now intertwine with, with construction safety. Excellent. Thank you. So I want to um, kick things off here a little bit with Hillary um, and, and let you give the update forecast that you were talking about. Well, um, it's changing daily, right? But where we're at today on November uh, 24th, um, you know, two days before Thanksgiving, it, here in the United States, we're, you know, just sort of a rundown of our statistics I thought might be useful um, to just come back to is, we you know, we're at, at over 12 million cases, um, over 263,000 deaths. Um, and, you know, we were getting better, I think, at, tr at tracking um, where, where we're at uh, with, with looking at community spread. And um, we've got a lot of schools back in session now here in Georgia, at least in person. And so looking at um, what that data uh, has brought to us over the past few weeks, um, and, and I think really identifying at least here that we're we're honing in on um, that schools are not the, the spreaders that we thought they were going to be uh, necessarily as long as there are certain protocols in place we've also seen a big distinction between those that have um, gone you know with with universal masking in the schools um, versus those that, that left it to be optional. Um, and so the, the data is really starting to point towards the smaller gatherings of people um, that are certainly driving community transmission. Um, you know, at the moment, one American is dying per minute um, in, from, from COVID. That's our sort of current stat. And the thing that I think it's really important to highlight and why I said our date and that we're two days before Thanksgiving is that we all have to sort of remember that the the lag time that we're looking at in terms of data because you have to have the incubation period and then you have to feel um, and then once the incubation period passes right you you might develop symptoms and then you know those symptoms take a few days to worsen and then potentially lead you to um, hospitalization, et cetera. So, um, you know, the projections are that we're looking at probably 3,000 people a day dying up from 1,700 people a day dying by, you know, the second week of December by 1212. Um, and, and you know what's shocking about that, Hillary, is that is a 9-11 every day. Correct. Correct. And those of us remembering the gut wrench of 9-11 and it's happening every day. Daily. And, um, and yet I'm getting invites to Christmas parties, right? So um, there's, you know, just a reminder, our incubation period, sort of what we know right now is that it's, you know, two to 14 days, they're holding fast on that 14 days, most people are showing symptoms, you know, within the first four to five days. Um, 
certainly the vast majority by 11 days in. If you're going to show symptoms, um, that's when they're going to show up. Um, and and that that's, again, sort of really important for us to remember, I think, as we talk later today in the podcast about contact tracing and the role that it um, plays is keeping some of these numbers in mind. Um, and so forecast, you know, in addition to the, the I can't even think about um, 3,000 people a day, uh, we're, we're going to add in seasonal flu as well um, as we start moving into the winter months. Um, and, and that while those numbers are harder to, to really pin down because influenza, seasonal influenza isn't a notifiable disease, right? It's, um, so any number that you typically generate talking about seasonal influenza, you're gonna, you're gonna have a wide range of, of where your, your estimates are gonna be because um, health departments aren't necessarily going to be notified whether there was a seasonal influenza case. So we, we know that last year, uh, that was somewhere in the range of about 25,000 to 60,000 people died in the U.S. from seasonal influenza, which is a lower number than it was in that 2017-2018 period was, was high, but it still um, wasn't, it's not touching where we're at now. Um, and we know that, that seasonal flu is also um, gonna sicken millions and that it will put, you know, um, tens of thousands of people into the, into the hospital. Um, so, so we've got that as an addition to talking about COVID that I think is, is important, especially if we're gonna talk about preventative measures. Um, so that's, I think that's sort of the, the basic update. Um, you know, we're testing more people and, um, and that's good, but our test positivity rate is the number now that we're really looking at, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what is the percentage of people that test positive um, in relationship to the, to the total number of people tested? And um, that's, that's the number that we're also looking to, to sort of track at this point as we move into the, um, into the winter and trying to make um, educated decisions about what we need to do next in our communities and workplaces. Would you also touch on the, um, on, you've been involved where I think the rest of us are more focused on the construction side. You're also involved with uh, manufacturing and food processing. Could you talk on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the challenge with manufacturing and food processing is that you also have other agencies that are now involved, right? So you have FDA and USDA and OSHA, right? And CDC and all these different um folks that are looking at food safety um, and, and what that means as well as, um, as the workers themselves in, in those places. So there are, um, there are resources that are specifically designed um, and co-published really by the FDA and OSHA to address human and animal food operations. Um, and that's sort of one group. And then there are recommendations specific for manufacturing that does not include food. And, um, and they're distinct really because you're looking at different sanitation efforts in, in those um, facilities oftentimes. But then, you know, you have um, in some food production, you have 
people harvesting things in the field, right? And, mm-hmm. and by hand and their, their layout um, and proximity to each other is different than those people that are working on um, the processing line at a poultry plant, for example. So those, um, those are all gonna be a little bit different um, in parameters. You know, we certainly have seen the highest um, caseload in the, in the meat packing um, industries when we're talking about food. Um, and that's really a function of, of how, how close those folks are standing together. So the number of people um, that, are, that are present at any given time, how, how close they uh, are in proximity to each other. And oftentimes it's not just that they're shoulder to shoulder, but they're also shoulder to shoulder and directly across from each other. Um, and, and modifying that is challenging. And then um, depending on the building structure, oftentimes the food processing facilities, you know, are challenged with, with their ventilation um, anyhow. And so there's, there's a number of factors that are at play for, um, for the food manufacturing industry. Um, and, mis- and the facilities are, are also, it's dependent on, on sort of occupancy loading at the time. And so there's some really good guidance that's come out for both of them. And in reviewing that, you know, I think there's, there's also some really excellent lessons that construction can take too from, from those documents and at least just some of the questions that could be asked um, and modified um, for, for this particular industry group as well. You mentioned ventilation. I want to remember to come back to that. Before we started recording, we were talking about the issue of perception of risk in safety overall, what a huge issue is. Lisa, you want to pick up on that? I think um, dealing with or working with anybody, I think we all, just people being people, have different perceptions of what's risky and what's not um, based on, you know, their own work environments, their family environments, um, their, their upbringing in that. And I think as safety professionals, we, I think we work in that environment, really trying to bridge that gap of understanding of risk um, and, and to provide some continuity with really the the workforce that that we um, are trying to help so dealing with risk um, and you know I I try to find ways out in the field to to help people understand that you know their risk and their experiences you know especially working with COVID um, is going to be completely different to the next person. So being able to find folks that you would otherwise not think that they had any experience with COVID um, through orientations and through conversations in the field, you know, do you know anybody that's been affected by it? Do you have any family members or are you aware of anybody within your circle? And oftentimes I've been able to find somebody that has a pretty unique experience um, whether it's a family member working in the healthcare industry that uh, contracted COVID and is really struggling now in the aftermath, you know, their symptoms may not have been as severe um, requiring intubation, but they are still suffering side effects from it. So I think them 
seeing it personally and being able to share that personal experience with others, I think helps with the COVID fatigue um, to, to know and understand that it is, yes, it really is here. And now I, I know somebody on the job that I work with and kind of how it affects. I mean, we still are all suffering from a significant amount of COVID fatigue. Um, and the fact that the information changes um, recommendations changes throughout the weeks and months. Um, you know, it just causes doubt to creep in. And, and I understand it. I mean, I, it's frustrating to change from what face coverings are, are okay and what are not. And then what was not is now back to being okay uh, in some cases. But, um, you know, really, I think as safety professionals, that's this is a, a perfect storm for us to really come out of this experience with, um, with some additional leadership skills and um, some um, oh, uh, some some credibility, you know, that we might not have otherwise had. I like your suggestion about having folks share personal experiences because that does tend to make it more real. Um, one thing we know about how the brain works and perception of risk is that first of all, humans are terrible in their ability to judge risk. We are just absolutely lousy at it. And what we deal with in, in safety on a day-to-day -day basis is the phenomenon that I think we're going through that's leading to fatigue is that the longer you are exposed to a risk and nothing bad happens to you, the more it changes your perception of that risk not being a real risk. And that's, that's a real problem for us to, to fight. We'll come back to COVID fatigue here in a little bit. I wanted to, um, maybe Nicole has this, uh, can pick up on two things. One is the problem we're having with transportation and folks riding in, in groups to work. Do you want to start with that? Have you had any way to deal with that or is it just something we can't change? It, it, it is definitely one of the biggest challenges that and um, the, the living setups um, of a lot of our workforce just by, you know, culturally, a lot of them live in, you know, groups of at least four in an apartment. And that has definitely been making it more difficult when we have somebody who, who contracts it and the impact, especially when we have all, all four or five of those people are working on the same job site. Um, it, it's a huge impact on them. And how do they even quarantine under those circumstances? Well, that, that makes it more difficult on the people that are uh, just the roommates. So if one person contracts it, they all have to quarantine basically for the, the two weeks. But once that first person's quarantine, the, the infected person's quarantine is up, then the remaining three start their, their real quarantine. So uh, to be able to tell these guys that, you know, you're going to be out of work for four weeks is, is almost impossible. So, you yeah. know, a lot of these, you know, this is the best most protective way to prevent the spread, but um, you know, without testing, especially, or some means to get people out of those um, out of those apartments and separate them, you know, we we do our best wherever we can to make sure that people aren't traveling together, aren't rooming together, um, 
you know, as far as uh, most of our traveling staff, like corporate, you know, we rent separate vehicles wherever possible so that we're not riding in the same, same vehicles for long distances. Um, but, you know, most of this is within our trade partners and, you know, a number of tiers down many times. And what messages we give our immediate trade partners doesn't always make its way down. So it, it does become very challenging to try and control that. Um, you know, and then just something as simple as lunch, you know, going out to all sit in their vehicles and each eat lunch together. So, you know, we've tried on a lot of our job sites to provide eating areas that, you know, have a lot of tables, they're spread out, they're open air and trying to encourage people to eat there, but, um, <laughs> but not too close together. Yeah, we're all dealing with pets, aren't we here? Um, uh, you know, and I don't know that any business, maybe some of you do, that has found a way to, to deal with specifically the quarantine issue. I, I've read, you know, in other countries that government's actually even paying for hotels or whatever for folks to have a place where they could afford to go. But I don't know of any of that happening here. The, no, I you mean, know. Oh, sorry, Lisa. The, oh, um, no, 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 go ahead. The only, um, you know, sort of additional experience I, I had was, and, and they're, I think they're working with an entirely different budget, is, is the entertainment industry, like the film entertainment ah. industry. And um, back when, you know, sort of towards the beginning of summer, uh, we had some advisory calls with a production group that, you know, was looking to um, looking to plan their shoot here in Georgia and um, what that what that needed to look like. They had not yet hired a COVID coordinator. We obviously advised them that that's something that they would want to pursue. Um, and, you know, what what are some of the tasks that person might look at? Um, but their plan was was certainly to basically uh, rent out uh, and make a compound basically for right. those folks that were going to need to be on on site on set uh, for a period of time and and basically hold them there and so um, you know whether it was was running out of a mess load of rooms at the local um, motel uh, or bringing in trailers you know or mobile homes. Uh, and, and, and sort of holding people, you know, just much, much like the, you know, the pro sports folks are able to do right now, create that bubble. Right. right. Um, and, you know, I think we all look at that and, and look at this industry and say, Oh my God, there's no way. But, but honestly, I think if it's something to just put into the toolbox of thoughts, especially if there was a project that had to get completed, you know, on, um, on a time scale that, that was not gonna allow for um, any flexibility, or if, you, if that work was taking place in an area where you knew you had really high community spread, um, you know, it's just sort of thinking through um, what, are, what are some of these costs that we might start building into projects that we never thought about before? And, and is that even a feasible option to think about? But, you know, again, to Lisa's point, if we're talking about weighing risks, right now you're talking about not just the health risk for somebody, but the risk of not 
completing the job on time, right? And what does that cost? So right. um, it, was, it was an interesting approach for the entertainment folks, I think, early on, and, and one that maybe has worked successfully. And, you know, whether that has um, extendability into other industries, I don't know. Lisa, did you want to follow up on, on the, Nicole's conversation on transportation? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it, she brings up a really good point um, from a transportation to, and, and usually those guys that are coming or those folks um, that are coming to the jobs, you have a lot that are riding together or traveling to and from together. And I think where, where we've tried to, and I know Nicole has done this as well, but there's some of that that you, you cannot stop. Um, but what we can do and what we've been able to do in some, some instances is keep those crews together, um, not knowing what they're doing or if they're, if they're you know, collectively meeting at a, a warehouse to come and make some deliveries or they're actually meeting at another place and coming to the job site. is just keeping that crew together that rode together and, and they all are working just in that crew by themselves so that when they leave or if there is an issue, you know, the, the terrible thing is it's taking out the crew um, in its entirety, but it's a much more easy to isolate them um, and to isolate any other group that may have been contact versus having, you know, each of those three or four or more folks go into different crews. So isolating them that way, we've had some success with that. Um, but it's, you have to know what's going on in the projects and, and the leadership on the projects has to be diligent and really kind of observing how people are showing up to work. Um, not just how they're showing up through the gates, but how are they, you know, where are they parking, watching to see who's, who's getting out of cars or trucks together, um, how deliveries are coming in. A lot of them will come in through deliveries, but if you have to actually physically be out to see this, um, to, to make an accurate, um, to make an accurate assessment of what's going on and what needs to be done. Yeah, there you go. The age-old problem. You've got to get out of the office and get out in the field. Uh, Nicole, I want to bounce back to you. I don't know if you had any follow-up on that, but I was also going to throw at you um, something that Hillary had mentioned in our notes, which is, um, are there anything, is there anything special that can be done for those of us uh, in any organization that have an increased risk, those with um, chronic, you know, health conditions, uh, ob obesity, et cetera, is, is that something we're able to deal with? I think that the fact that we just don't know who's going to be um, hit the hardest. I mean, really in the beginning, there was a lot of focus on people who are, you know, immune compromised or in a certain age group or high risk. But really what we're seeing now is that you know, it's, it's really hitting um, different age groups. It can hit them just as hard. So right now, I think the, and correct me if I'm wrong, Hillary, the, the higher population that's in the hospital right now are actually like in the 40-year-old age group. So we've gone through maybe that, the focus on the elderly and the, the nursing homes, and now it's, it, it is hitting our working, healthy um, group. So, um, yeah, I think that the, the solution is just maintaining that diligence, no matter who it is, 
So you may have somebody that says, hey, I'm 30 years old and it's, you know, I'm healthy. If I get it, it's not a big deal because I'm, I'm going to be able to recover. But, you know, we don't know how that's going to impact the others on, on the job site. So it's really just you know, taking those precautions equally and, and trying to maintain that because, you know, like we just talked about, you know, this pandemic fatigue, it's, I almost feel like it's, it's creating a larger gap in, you know, there's this group of people that now are just absolutely animate that it doesn't exist. I mean, absolutely adamant that, that this is just, um, you know, a make-believe virus and nobody is dying from it. And there's other people who are absolutely scared um, so much more than what they were in the beginning. And they're, they're now seeing their, their loved ones get it. And I've had, you know, I know people whose entire families have got it, have, you know, had people die, have people in the hospital. So now it seems like it's really affecting so many more people personally where they actually know somebody and it, it is changing their risk perception finally. It, it absolutely does change your risk perception. Um, you know, kind of ironically, uh, going back to 1918, you know, we, we, this is not our first rodeo, right? With, with the pandemic situation, with any pandemic in 1918 was such a huge one. And I ask people now, because I'm heavy into family history and genealogy, and I know that 1918 hit my great-grandfather's family so hard, and I know the faces, they're on my wall and portraits of those that died in 1918. So getting it to that personal uh, understanding is what it takes. The, the, we've heard this anecdotally with the folks crying, it's a hoax, it's a hoax, until they're laying in the ICU and they now it's not a hoax, sadly. Hillary, do you want to touch any more on the, um, the, the problems with those, with our workers that are increased risk? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that's, that's interesting, um, you know, listening to Nicole and um, Lisa and you sort of talk about this and, and knowing that a lot of it is about, it's about perception and whether that perception is influenced by um, a story, right? A personal anecdote or personally knowing somebody, or if it's um, coming from somewhere else, you know, it, just recently um, our sitter came, um, came to, to watch Owen and um, her parents had just returned from Mexico. She had pleaded with them not to go, but that's what they do um, for, for Dia de los Muertos, right? And have every year. And so they, they said, we're going and we will take all the precautions and, and it'll be fine. Um, and they've been very careful since they've, you know, went living here. Um, but she just told me that while they were in Mexico, um, in the town that they visit, the church bells ring. They ring the church bells when someone dies, right, and passes on. And that while they were there, the bells were ringing six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. And that she said her mom came home changed, right? That right. it's one thing for us 
you know, to talk about 3,000 people a day and know, right, as, as Americans who live through 9-11, like what that number is, how we felt, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's different for different cultures, right? And, right? and how they might process certain events or things that are in the world and to, you know, bring it, bring it home and realize that they were in a space where every time they heard that bell ring, they realized, wait, this is, this is so abnormal. This is not what, you know, we used to experience. And so when, when we talked about that, I just thought it was so um, interesting as, and especially for me and, you know, going back to my public health roots, thinking about how we communicate um, our messaging, what, when we're trying to convince people to change a behavior, right, or to understand a risk or to make a modification, um, you know, it's just been interesting to watch the, the messaging that's been coming out, you know, around CDC, et cetera, as we build up to Thanksgiving and the holidays and, you know, really honing in on, you know, you're going to kill grandma if you go, right? Like bluntly, I've watched the messages get blunter and blunter. And, um, and again, it's just, we, as, as safety and health professionals, we're constantly trying to find that balance between what, um, how do we, how do we demonstrate to people that we can embrace uncertainty, we can acknowledge uncertainty and still, you know, move forward with, with measures that, that we know, um, do work you know the other the other case that that has just been presented recently is that um one of the art teachers here in Cobb County yes um, is he's young I mean like Nicole said he's young and he's he's in ICU on a ventilator for his life he's on life support at this point and his wife also has just recovered from COVID and a GoFundMe has been set up and I um, logged in last night to make a contribution because our art teacher at our school um, knows him very well and she is just beside herself. And there was a comment from a woman on, on this GoFundMe who was like, I don't really know why we have to have a GoFundMe set up. Isn't COVID covered, right, as an illness and won't, won't it all be paid for? And the discussion that lit up um, within that, that one comment was just really interesting to peruse. And, you know, aside from all of the, the nitty gritties around <laughs> sick days and insurance and, and what's covered and what's not, you know, someone was like, hello, it's also about groceries and childcare and paying their car insurance and the ripple, right? And yes. we, as safety and health professionals, we talk about that all the time when we're talking about an injury that's sustained on the job or someone who becomes, you know, um, their lungs are impaired because of silicosis, right? Um, or COPD, and that um, that that the ripple continues, and it's it's irrelevant whether, you know, so-and-so is going to pay for their, um, you know, their basic medical care. It's all these other things that are, that are added on top of that. And so I, just coming back to, again, sort of thinking about what is the messaging that, that we've got going on? What is the message that people need to hear? It's variable for each of them. Um, 
but those are just a couple of things that have, have come up recently for me that have, have helped me think about, you know, we're, we're way past people doing the right thing because they, they, it's altruistic, right? We're right. because we have so many people who perceive this to not be an issue still, um, that, that we've got to figure out different methods for communication around it. Suggestions? No, Lisa had a good one. Um, messages? But, yeah, to, to Hillary's point, and I, you know, I think it goes along with our, our general profession mantra, but, you know, how we go about helping our leadership understand, you know, our, our folks in the field and, and people in general are really influenced by what we do, not by what we say. You know, not not just within our own company, um, but companies all around. You know, I've talked to you know some peer uh, peer folks, and you know, we all have I think some great and wonderful corporate messaging on what we need to do, how we need to do it. You know, limiting meetings, um, limiting folks that are in meetings at one time or certain rooms, certain sizes, um, but there there are various projects project teams you know not necessarily just within our own company but outside that you can tell what's important to them by just watching them walk to lunch and and sit in a booth or or making sure they're spread out you know at, at a larger table or splitting up into two groups so that they're not um, all sitting close together and that um, watching what they do in the office, you know, are they diligent or is it just the safety team that's, that's wearing face coverings walking through the office. Um, and in the field, you know, people, people notice what we as leaders do and yes. they're walking around out there um, or calling meetings or going in and sitting underneath the break tent together with everybody, you know, that, that's, you know, that waters down any um, messaging, meaningful messaging that's, that's occurred. You know, we, we can say what we want in the safety meetings or in our foreman's meetings or in our pod meetings. Um, but it's really what we do that matters. That is, that is an incredibly important point. And it's not just COVID, is it? It It's, what right. leadership does matters. Um, Nicole, any, uh, also I just want to open this up to any things that are working for you that have changed since maybe the last time we talked. Yeah, I mean, as far as what's working for us, I mean, I think it's, um, it's just maintaining the, the emphasis and really, you know, talk, continuing to, to talk about it and and especially where we have COVID fatigue, um, you know, making a, a special point of, of reinforcing it with everybody, especially where we start seeing, um, you know, some lax behaviors. I'd say that the, the field has been doing really well. I think that, you know, the guys that are working out in the field um, are, they've gotten used to it, um, depending, you know, people are now finding the, the type of mask that they, they feel comfortable in. We may not have completely conquered the whole anti-fog safety glasses issue, but you know, I think it's becoming pretty routine. 
where I think it's still challenging is in the indoor environments, which is where we actually need them the most. Um, that, that is still really difficult for people to, to be holding meetings um, and to be able to talk. And I know when I present and I have a mask on, I, I know it's difficult for people to, to hear me. And I, I try to, to talk as well as I can through that, but, um, but it's uncomfortable. And I think it also depends on, you know, where you're living and those messages coming from the community. So, you know, a lot of these people will, um, you know, go, go back home after work and they can go out to bars, restaurants and not have to wear anything. Um, so I, I think that that is a confusing message, number one. Um, you know, just the fact that they're saying on television, don't go have Thanksgiving. Um, well, that's confusing for people because they're thinking, well, I go out to dinner with my family a couple nights a week at, at the restaurants. Why can't I have Thanksgiving with them? So, you know, it's, it's obviously easier for us to, to manage those, those communications and to understand the, the point um, and why they're making those recommendations. But uh, for people who aren't necessarily um, in it like we are and understanding the transmission, it's, it's just very confusing for people. And, and then the last thing I would say is that, you know, this, this pandemic is like every other safety challenge we have. It's easy to do when there's no other conflicting messages or pressures. Safety is easy. But as soon as you have, you know, you're kind of in this position where now you have to make a challenging decision. You know, I want to see my family for Thanksgiving. You know, then, you know, your, your perception of risk or your decisions changes based on what you really want to do. And, and that's, that's the problem. You mentioned something about ventilation and it triggered the thought in my mind. So I've been following a lot of the conversations uh, amongst epidemiologists on, on the issue of ventilation uh, in the workplace, the schools, and you know, we've had the CDC recommendations about opening windows and all that. Well, that's not going to work when it gets down to 30 degrees. Um, but, uh, and, and I don't know, maybe Hillary, you're the one to talk about this. Uh, there's also some talk about just using things like a box fan and putting um, a HEPA filter in, in that box fan. Can you offer any thoughts on that? Um, it, the, the ventilation issue is, is much more about increasing the amount of outside air, right? Yes. So that it's, we've got dilution and, and, and certainly Nicole can speak to this as well. When we, when we don't increase the amount of outside air that we've got going, um, in to dilute and we just add in a box fan whether it has a have a filter placed on it, you know, or not, now you're just you're creating a lot more turbulence, right, right within that space, and um, and so you know we we do want to be cautious about about making those types of modifications. I mean, I think the most recent guidance that came out of Harvard's Healthy Building programs, and specifically looking at at schools. Um, 
you know, is acknowledging that there's no way really in a school setting that you're going to be able to maintain six feet and that their recommendation in schools is, is as long as people are wearing face coverings and you're improving ventilation as best you can, you know, three feet is probably going to be more realistic. Um, that's in a school setting. And, and what they're doing there with that recommendation is weighing the risk of not having kids in school, right? That, that we're losing, that we're losing kids, um, you know, not only educationally, but we're, they're, they don't even know where, you know, some of their kids are, they haven't presented um, back to school, um, you know, and, and there's not enough, they're not sure where they're getting their meals from, et cetera, right? All of the costs of not having kids in school. So they're, they're trying to really parse down the data and say, as long as certain um, control strategies are in place in that type of environment, then, then we could think about modifying the recommendation on, on distance. You know, from a, from the other ventilation perspective, um, I do, it's, it's, we still don't know enough about viral loads, you know, to sort of, um, although we know that we do have super spreaders who, regardless of what it is that they're doing, they're just going to shed more virus than other people. And so again, if you're adding ventilation, just in the form of movement into a space, um, then, then you're just spreading it around more. So, you know, with, with that, um, you know, comes, comes looking at putting, what is, what is the cleaning protocol, right? And, and how, how many people are in a space at a given time. Um, and if we're gonna use a, a fan and put any type of filtration on it, um, are we also watching what we've got for, for outside air being provided? Um, and where are we, where are we exhausting it to? It's, um, it's a combination of all the things. It's that Swiss cheese model, right? That we, that we see for, for all types of management of, of risk or, or safety related challenges that maybe we're all familiar of. And it's, it's the same thing here. Every element, every intervention that we can do has holes in it, has, has gaps in it. But the more of those layers of intervention that we can put together, the less likelihood that those holes will line up and provide a direct pathway, you know, through. So it, it is exhausting and it's, and it's costly. And it's um, for those that don't believe, then it seems like overkill. But the reality is, is that it's sort of putting a variety of these things together. Um, and, and my concern is definitely as we move move most people inside um, during the colder months. You know, this was a conversation I had with our barbershop and beauty professional folks yesterday in our alliance meeting with them. And, you know, that during the summer, a lot of the nail salons and, um, you know, places where people get their hair cut can have the doors open, right? And, and put a fan in and reduce, reduce occupancy. But as it gets colder, it's um, much more challenging to do that. And, um, and so we, we, we need to be thinking now, especially also how we're going to maintain, you know, sort of the humidity that is the humidity range that's being recommended now, which is also challenging in an environment like construction where you don't have HVAC systems up and running um, necessarily where people are going to be working. So that's where it becomes even more important to layer these different approaches together. Well, is it possible that one of the long-term changes 
from this pandemic is that we think more about uh, air changes per hour in our building construction going forward. Um, I would hope so. I don't know that it'll, that it'll, what do you think, Nicole? You think that's where it'll go? I don't. I, I think we, we struggle already just maintaining the current standards for, for air changes and proper air quality within our offices. And so I, I think it's, um, I think it's going to be very challenging. And, and like we mentioned earlier, you know, people have short memories. So once this is gone, um, I don't think it's going to be a priority for people's capital budgets to probably redo uh, their ventilation systems. Well, that's a whole nother subject for another uh, podcast sometime about the impact on, on public health with our airtight buildings without, you know, reasonable air changes per hour. What else? I guess I, I would add that um, in a way we feel like we are at the beginning of the pandemic again um, with some of the discussions that we're having as far as, um, you know, our, our working um, rotations or, you know, remote working situations uh, for people who can work remotely, um, where in some cases we've come back to work, do we go out again? Um, you know, the, the impact on, on schools. Um, I mean, I know my daughter uh, went back to school one day and we were notified of, of close exposure um, and she quarantined for the next two weeks. So that makes it very difficult on working parents who have just kind of gotten back into the swing of having their kids back into school. Um, sick time, I think, has got to be a, a major um, item to look at from, from an industry or whether that's government or, or not. But, you know, if we really look at some of the root causes, the fact mm -hmm. that uh, most contractors uh, don't have sick time. So it doesn't matter what we tell them as far as don't come to work if you've been exposed, don't come to work if you're sick, they won't get paid. And so that's, you know, that's one of the most significant drivers to, to not being able to get a handle on this is that, you know, you just, you can't expect people to stay home um, if it means they can't put food on the table. That's, that's a really good point. And it's not, uh, it's not just the issue of sick time, although that's huge, but it's also part of the culture. As I remember working in the field and if you called in sick, I mean, goodness, that was, uh, that, that was not going to be a bonus for your career. And you knew that. Um, so we've got to change both that culture and then think about how do we make it possible for people to be sick and not get paid. Lisa, anything else? I would agree on the um, kind of the sick, sick days and that and getting people to report. You know, this is also the time of year that people start traveling home. And I mean, home, you know, maybe, um, you know, back out of the country. So to Mexico mm -hmm. uh, and, and other parts. Um, and getting folks to be honest about that. And again, quarantining, you know, because at this point they're required to quarantine when they come back, if you know that they've left. Right. And getting folks to be honest about that, figuring out how we can 
work with the employees. I mean, it's hard for everybody not being around your family, but not being around them, you know, for, for an entire year or two or three years, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard pull not to succumb to, to go back, you know, and, and want to see them. So um, our, our challenge has been making sure our communication is, is clear um, and the messaging that, Hey, if you, you know somebody that's not feeling well one if you're not feeling well please stay home but if somebody shows up in your crew that's not feeling well please let us know um the most frustrating thing is to think you've you know communicated fairly well and to get the late report of well somebody hadn't been feeling well for a couple of days and now they're home and they're going to get a covid test and not have known anything about it so and that um, it is still not unusual, unfortunately. So it's, uh, it's just trying to maintain diligence for everybody. And it, it will be pretty interesting to see what happens over the next three to four weeks with the holiday travel and the holiday um, um, celebrations that are going on. It's, it's, it's the, for most people, it's one of their favorite times of year, including myself. And so it's hard to cancel these trips. And, you know, I, I recently just canceled a trip um, to, to visit my uh, best friends up in Chicago. And that's, you know, I go up there every year and, you know, it, uh, I just didn't feel good about um, going up there and then going home you know, so soon, uh, or back to back. So with, with the risk of getting my parents sick. So, um, but just as much as we, we can as professionals, you know, take the politics out of it and just kind of look at the science and, um, and help manage the communication and make sure it's clear to everybody, um, and over communicate. That's the best we can do. I think. Any follow up on that Hillary or Nick? Nicole? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's, it's really hard right now. And I, um, and I think uh, that, that alone, we just have to also remember it. Holidays are, are many people's very favorite time of year. And for others, holidays are the very hardest time of year, right? And um, we know that already, and we know people are are moving into less daylight and colder temps and seasonal depressions coming in. And we already know the construction industry is at higher risk, right, for for um, mental health and suicide. Um, I'm I'm an optimistic person. You you for you know you ladies know that about me. But this is um, I'm I'm scared. I'm concerned for what the next couple of months are going to look like. Honestly, and we really, I think as we're as we're talking about what we're communicating, it's not only communicating about how to drive down our risk and keep each other safe, but it's also highlighting looking out for each other and looking for other other things that are going to be coming up for folks. Um, because I think we are going to enter some some darker times here. Um, I'm, you know, with the numbers that I think will rise after this holiday span of travel, um, it's it's going to be painful for for folks. And um, 
and it's painful to, to either be witnessing or painful to experience. And so what are we, what are we doing to care for each other's mental health when, when we ourselves are so drained, right? You know, a lot of the safety and health professionals that I feel like we, when I talk to them about, about their workforces and that they, you know, do they get their, their employees coming to them and sharing things with them that they wouldn't necessarily share with supervisors or mm -hmm. other managers or even their HR department. You know, most every single person's hand will go up or they will nod, yes. I, you know, somehow end up being treated like the, the therapist, right? The ad hoc therapist or, or somebody, you know, they, they're coming to me with, with a variety of different concerns. And so that, that means that's a burden or a weight that, that we feel in addition to all of the other components. And, and so I don't know if where, where we're at with that, if there's, um, attention being drawn to that on any of y'all sites or is that an experience that you share is is messaging about you know protecting mental health or looking out for for signs or concerns um something that's part of this conversation this covid conversation for you all nicole yeah we you know we definitely try um, we've definitely raised um, the awareness um, around suicide and construction, um, mental health. Uh, we know that um, alcohol use, uh, drug use, addiction, um, you know, is, is gone up like 300 uh, percent during this. So we, we know that that it's out there um, and we're, we're trying to do as much as possible. But at the same time, um, you know, these guys are they're just getting hit with so much, so much guidance, so much do this, don't do that. And um, at some point, too much messaging is just going to be lost. So we are really trying to be deliberate and keep those messages, uh, you know, direct and, and clear and definitely mental health and, and suicide is, is definitely one of those messages. Well, in, cl in closing, uh, a couple of things. Yes, um, Hillary's comment about safety people having folks come to them with, with life problems. When you have that going on, it means you are doing a great job. And it means you're, you are leadership, you are showing leadership. There are plenty of safety people out there that no one in the cruise is gonna come to them with life problems. So those of you on this call are those people. And I know it's hard for you, but it is, you are leaders. You are leaders in your industry and you're leaders in this pandemic. And I appreciate that very much, appreciate you all. So I wanna thank you guys. And I want, hope everyone has a wonderful holiday, Thanksgiving, stay safe out there and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you.